The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Once again, we're going to read Luke chapter 18, verses 35, till um, chapter 19, verses 10. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd gone by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to, to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. But he was about to pass that way. <clears throat> and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it's good to see you all. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Let's pray. Ask our Lord to help us as we study his word together. Father, um, it's my prayer that what we see happen in these two amazing stories would happen in our hearts t even today, and that uh, we know for many of us, it has happened, it is happening, uh, we want it to happen more. For some of us, maybe it hasn't happened yet, and we pray that it would. God, we pray that we would see um, with our minds and the eyes of our hearts, who Jesus is, and that you would teach us and move in us and motivate us to respond accordingly. So please do that in us, Lord, and please help me to teach this faithfully, Lord, and give us all the ability to listen into what you're saying through your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing through our study through the Gospel of Luke this eyewitness account of the, Lord, of the Lord Jesus, his life, what he taught. 
And I think what we have here are two incredible stories that draw out two essential questions. Two incredible stories that draw out two essential questions. So first, the stories. You may have noticed how they kind of follow a pattern. You have the loser, the crowd, and the king. In each story, there's a someone society would consider a loser for one way or another, an outsider, an outcast. Then there's the crowd. You see how the crowd kind of responds to that person. It's kind of the status quo attitude of the time. Then there's the king, the shocking, surprising king, the Lord Jesus. So within these two stories, you see this pattern, the loser, the crowd, the king. But you also hear Luke kind of, I think, prodding us and the whole world with these two questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is he? And so that question gets at the idea of truth, reality. Who is he? Um, despite what you or anybody else may be believe about him, who is he according to the evidence, according to his claim? Who is he? The second question I think Luke is drawing out, which is just as essential, is who is he to you? Who is he to you? What does he mean to you? And the reason that's important is because wouldn't you agree it's very easy to believe in truth and have it not change your life in any way, shape, or form? Don't you believe true things that you don't care about? Don't you, be, some, you can believe some things are real and claim that they're real and not have it shape you or change you or win you in any way. And sadly, devastatingly, it's, it's possible to do that with Jesus. So these two questions, they're each essential, they're each on purpose, they go together. You can't respond to who Jesus is appropriately unless you know the truth of who he is. But knowing the truth of who he is is not in itself enough. Who is he to you? And these two stories just, I think, marvelously unpack the realities here. The loser, the crowd, the king. We see who Jesus is, and we see how his people will respond. So just a little background before we get into the story. Um, I think we've come to a major transition in Luke's gospel and how the gospel's working. So I don't expect you to have this all memorized down pat. But some of you all-star Bible listeners might remember that way back in chapter 9, which is for us was I don't know how long ago. Way back in chapter 9, it said Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. So he has decided to go. He's on the way to the capital city of Israel where the, where the temple is. Okay, He's on his way. And he's been on that journey from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 19. And so the themes there of that section of this gospel has been, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to belong to him? Well, as we come to this section of chapter 19, we're just on the doorstep of Jerusalem. Jericho, where Jesus is, is like a day away. Um, for some of us, we don't hike that often. Okay, two days, but you get the idea. It's a day away. It's right there. And so very soon, the, the gospel is going to transition from this journey to Jerusalem and take you into, okay, the king has now come to the capital. The king has now come to the temple. The king has now come. And so there, it's going to be this, uh, this tension, this fervor, where Jesus is going to do and claim things, and the powers that be are going to question his authority to do that. We'll see how that plays out. But for today, we're kind of finishing up this long journey from chapters 9 all the way to 19, where he's on the way to Jerusalem. And I think in these two stories, it, it really sums up the whole point of this section, 
Who is Jesus? How should we respond to him? Who is he to us? Uh, you'll notice in both stories, there's a crowd. The crowd, as we get to this part of the gospel, is growing. It's stirring. Uh, because we see that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as a king. And so he's, he's been doing miracles. He's been teaching incredible things. And the, the crowd is watching. And so there's this political fervor and tension. There's this religious fervor and tension as the king comes to the city at this major feast of Passover. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? How are the powers that be going to respond? Is he going to take over Rome? What's he going to do with the chief priests who hate him and all this tension? So you've got this Jesus making this march, and he's right at the doorstep of the capital. At the time of Passover, this crowd is just funneling after him. And you see these two stories begin to take place. Let's start with story number one. The loser, the crowd, the king. Look at Luke 18, 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Number one, who's the loser? You've got a blind man. And what's he have to do? He's got to beg. Which, what does that tell you about his support community? Doesn't have one. Okay? He's alone. He's an outcast. He's desperately, horribly poor. Uh, one commentator said he's one of the expendables of the society. And the commentator even said his existence would have been considered an embarrassment. So back in that day, it was common to believe that your outward circumstances re represented your righteousness and how God felt about you. So if you're rich and successful and, you know, externally religious, you're good, you're doing good. If you're poor and uh, you're despised... You know, remember the story, about, and it's in John, right? There's a blind man, and the disciples say, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus' answer was, no. <laughs> wrong. You're seeing this wrong. But you see that this man is an outcast to society. People would give to him just to, you know, check the religious box of giving alms to the poor. But he's unvalued. He's, un he's not respected. Uh, he is a nobody. And while he can't see... He can hear. So he's sitting here in Jericho. And what does he begin to hear? Can you imagine it? I would assume his, he's more attentive to what he hears than probably I am. Because he can't see. And so he, he begins to hear. What does a crowd sound like as it walks through this village? You know, this host of people coming through. This, all the sounds of uh, that that would make and the clamor. And so you see what the blind man says. What's up? <laughs> What's going on? I hear stuff. What's happening? And what do they tell him? Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. Of Nazareth uh, just tells you which Jesus, which Jesus it is. And so the blind man instantly thinks, that Jesus is right here. Now, what is it that we could do if we were there that the blind man can't do? 
you could uh, run up to Jesus or you could approach him somehow. That's going to be difficult for this guy. He doesn't know where Jesus is. He wants to interact with Jesus. So what does he do? He starts screaming, man. And in the Greek, it's like, he's really screaming. <laughs> Jesus! Screaming. He doesn't want to let this huge crowd go by without interacting with Jesus. Can you taste what it would feel like? Wouldn't it feel a little bit awkward to have this man just screaming, screaming, and yet can't you kind of sense what it would be like for him too? What choice does he have? He wants, to see, he wants to interact with Jesus, so he, he screams, Jesus, but I want you to see what he says. What does he call Jesus? The son of David. Is that important? Let's just remember kind of the, I want to back up and just remember the storyline of the Bible. And unpack, it'll unpack why there's so much fervor and passion in this crowd. Storyline of the Bible, a good God makes a good creation, best part of his creation, male and female made in his image to enjoy him, represent him on the earth. It's perfect, it's awesome, it's wonderful. But humanity bought the lie. Uh, Satan tempted, right? God's not good, his word's not true. And if you believe those two things, you will replace him with an idol. You'll replace him with something else, and that's what we did and continue to do. So we're lost now, we're broken, we're ashamed, and we're under judgment, and we cannot save ourselves. But from the very moment of that fall, what was God's promise? You can look it up, Genesis 3.15, right? One will come, one will come who's going to save. And so as you read the storyline of the Bible, we're waiting for this one to come. And then God calls this guy named Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to build you into the family. And the one will come through your family. And God blesses Abraham's family and they become a nation. The one will come through this nation. And then this nation has this kind of ultimate King part one. It's King David and God makes a promise to him. The one will come from your lineage. And so as the people here are walking with Jesus to Jerusalem and they're thinking, he might be who? The one. And when the blind man says, Jesus, son of David, what is the blind man saying? You are the one. You are the one. You know, Jesus has been called many things in this gospel, but almost nobody calls him this. I'll give you a quote from one who knew it, okay? Okay. Way back, Luke chapter 1, Luke 1, verse 30. Look who's talking. And the, who? The angel said to her, what did he say? Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, how long, folks? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel knows what's going on. And then you walk through this gospel and almost nobody else knows what's going on. And then you meet 
this awkward, screaming blind man. And here's the irony of the upside-down kingdom. He's blind, but guess what? He sees. He sees who Jesus is. The crowd doesn't, not really. The authorities will test this, this identity of Christ, but the blind man says, you're the son of David. And then, not only do we see the blind man knows the truth of who Jesus is, but what's the next part of what he is continually screaming? Have mercy on me. And we've seen over and over again, right? Jesus cannot resist this kind of a request. Have mercy on me. And it's the heart that says, I have nothing in and of myself to earn anything from you. I have nothing in and of myself that I could deserve anything from you. I have nothing to be self-righteous about. Without you, I'm empty and lost, and you and your grace is what I need. That's what the heart says. And he says, son of David, he sees who Jesus is, but not only who is Jesus to the blind man. Is the blind man just saying, oh, he's the son of David, but eh. You're the son of David, and you're my only hope. Who is Jesus to the blind man? His only hope. Have mercy on me, son of David. And then, don't you love our king? Don't you love our king? Do you ever feel like you're unworthy to sit at the feet of Jesus? Have him, have you, have him look in the eye and relate to him? Look what Jesus does. And you see here that even though he's uh, somewhat homeless and has no army and no uh, great political administration, no buildings, he is the king. And look at verse 40. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Escort this man as my guest to my throne. There on the street. Bring him to me. And when the blind man came near, look at Jesus. He asked him, what do you want me to do for you? How does that feel to you? How does that feel to you? You know, we, uh, we missed something before we got here. And it'll help you feel it. What did, the, what did the front edges of the crowd do to the blind man when he was yelling? Do you see it? Rebuke him. What are they telling him? Dude, shut up. Do you hear him screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody's like, shut up. Why? Why shut up? Well, you're awkward. Shut up. We're on the, the king's on the way to Jerusalem. This is bigger than you. You're a nobody. Shut up. The king's on the way to Jerusalem. This is the storyline of God's redemption. These are about big, important things. And you, come on, what's the underlying emotion here? You are not important. This is not for you. You are a worthless, blind beggar. Shut up. The king is on to bigger things. But not according to the king. <laughs> Bring him before me. He stops the whole march. He stops the whole march. He forces the crowd who thinks the man is nothing to sit and watch. As he gives this nothing person 
the honor and attention of face-to-face, one-to-one communication. And then he even just says as a servant, he's the servant king, what can I do for you? Ah, just soak up the glory of your king here for a moment. Soak up the glory of your king for a moment. There's no one higher, no one greater, no one more just, no one more powerful, and he'll stop the whole train to look the nobody in the eye and listen. Which means, man, if there's room for the blind man right there, guess who else there just might be room for? You. Me. What can I do for you? Lord, let me recover my sight. And you see what Jesus says in 42. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. I love this. Bam. When Jesus heals, how does it work? Healing. I heard one, uh, one speaker say, it's hard to fake healing blindness. Okay? We could do like a little thing about healing lower back. You know, I could have you walk up here and I could just be like, and then you're like, hey! <laughs> could fake that one. But blindness, he's been there for years begging right there. He cannot see. He's yelling awkwardly. He cannot see. Jesus calls him forward. Recover your sight. And he sees. <laughs> How great. How great. By the way, what does the crowd have, now have pretty good evidence of? What did the blind man call Jesus? Son of David, have mercy on me. If you were to walk up to Jerusalem and say, I am the son of David, you are making the claim, I'm the one. I'm the promised king. I'm the judge. I'm the son of God. I'm the one who's going to renew the world. I'm the one who's going to save the people. That's me. I'm the one. If you make that claim, well, you better bring something else with that claim. I'm the one. You know, there were many false messiahs in the time. And they'd gather a little group, and then they'd, you know, have a little battle, and then they would lose. I'm the one. Prove it. All right. Does this work for you? He was blind. And now he sees. What's everybody know? Is this evidence? Jesus is the son of David. He's the king. But more than that, Jesus says to this man, your faith has made you well. You guys, I don't want to pretend like I'm some Greek expert. I'm really not. But occasionally, the point is important. Underneath this English phrase we're using, your faith has made you well, it's so much more than just you couldn't see and now you can see. It's, uh, it comes from the root word that's about salvation. Your faith has saved you. It saved you. And so has, has he enjoyed a bonus of his eyeballs working? Oh, yeah. But has more than that happened? Oh, yeah. So much more. He's saved. He's forgiven. He's loved. He's accepted. He's adopted. He has all the blessings of everything in Christ. And you see it in his response. Look at verse 43. Immediately he recovered his sight. And what's the next thing he did? He followed him. Hasn't Jesus invited some people to follow him? And those people say, no, I can't swing that. I can't commit like that. And what does this man do instantly? I'm with you. I'm following you. Second thing he does, he glorifies God. 
I mean, in a way, you could say this is the Christian life, right? Isn't that what we're doing? We want to follow Jesus. And so for us, we don't get to walk with him down the road to Jerusalem. We follow him together by the power of his spirit according to his word. We're trying to follow him right now, right? We want to hear him speak. We want to watch him act. We're following him. And don't we want to glorify God together and praise God for his goodness and thank him for his kindness and enjoy his grace? That's what this man is doing. Do you hear the answer to these questions? Who is Jesus? The compassionate, powerful son of David. That's who he is. Who is he to you? Who is he to the blind man? My hope, my treasure, my new community, my king, my God. You're everything to me, Jesus. Do you see it? The crowd can't help but notice, right? Whoa, they're glorifying God for his mercy. I mean, you just, you read all the gospels, you see these crowds would have just like a wave just growing as Jesus taught and did miracles. There's one more story to see. Chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. So who's the loser in our second story? Zacchaeus, but he's a loser in a different way. He's certainly not begging on the street corner. He's not poor. Look how he's described. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Very rich. Now, why is he considered a loser? It's because he's short. <laughs> ah, okay, all right, all right. As the old song says, right? He's a chief tax collector, so he's not a loser because of his poverty or his loss. It's because he's, he's a loser because he's a betrayer. He is a betrayer. You try to think of what it might be like. I, I, you know, Rome was under the, or Rome had domination over Israel, right? And Rome was hated. So I if you can imagine one of us like, I don't know, joining ISIS or something, if ISIS was in control, and then abandoning our community and then taxing us with military po power behind it and taking more than he needed to. Um, the, the sense of betrayal is awful. It's awful politically. So you've joined the Romans and you've left Israel. You've, the, sen the betrayal is religious. The Romans are pagans and polytheists and they don't know God or his truth. And you, now you team with them to abuse us. Um, it's relational because, you know, you're making money off our backs. There's uh, exploitation. There's def defrauding of others. So he's the betrayer. He, we don't want him in the temple. We don't want him at synagogue. We will not go to his house for dinner because table fellowship means relationship and acceptance. And he's definitely not coming to our house. He's an out. We don't want you. We don't like you. Go away. Outsider. And not only is he a tax collector, he's what? He's a chief tax collector. So he's not only overseeing his own crimes, he's been overseeing other people's crimes. 
and making money on the backs of that enterprise. How's his resume look? Now, you don't, you don't like him. You do not like him. But something is stirring in him. What's he want to see? Verse 3. He just has this irresistible desire to see Jesus. He has this irresistible desire. And he gets there, but he can't. Why? Because of the crowds. First of all, it shows you there's some layers to this crowd. This is a big crowd. If it's just one single line, you can find a hole. You know, you can, you can get in. But this, this crowd is deep. So it's a big crowd, and he can't get in to see. But uh, the commentator I read said, too, it's not just because he's short. Because I think it's possible to give short people a view. I have children. I've accomplished this. Okay? Make space. Let him sit somewhere. How come he can't get up to where short people can see? I think there is a wall of cold shoulders. They're not letting him in. You stay out. Why? Jesus might be here for us. He is not here for you. You've lost that ability. We're done with you. Get out. Can't see. But just like the blind man, right? What did the blind man keep doing when they said, hey, shut up? He kept screaming. What does Zacchaeus do when the crowd says, you can't come near? He runs ahead. He preempts the situation, and he finds a tree. Now, how often do you see, like, celebrities, especially elderly leaders, climbing trees? Okay. For the ancient Near East, if you're to be a respected kind of patriarchal kind of leader, <laughs> you don't climb trees. And you don't climb them in public. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. Kind of like yelling com- continuously in a crowd is embarrassing and shameful. But these men don't care anymore about what people think. Because they have to do something. They just have to. And what is it? they got to see Jesus. And so he climbs the tree. He climbs the tree so he can see. Now, will you ch- we just, I know it's not really possible, but will you imagine with me what it's like for him? Think of all the things swirling in his mind and emotions. He's got the sense of this whole crowd that can't stand him, and he's been living with that for years. Have you ever been in a scenario where there's lots of people who hate you? That's uncomfortable. He's got that. He's he's lonely. But he's also got the residue of what he's been, right? What is his title? I'm the chief tax collector. He's got power. He's got authority. He's got punch behind him. And yet what's going on in his heart? He's starving for something. And he just, to where he can't care about that anymore. Just want to see Jesus. What do you think his expectations are as Jesus passes by? I think that's about right. Jesus is going to pass by. I'm just going to get up. I just want to catch a glimpse. Because he probably believes exactly what the crowd believes about him. I can't go see him. And so he's up in the tree. And he's, and he's looking out. And he's feeling this mess of things. And then there's Jesus over there. And then Jesus over here. 
And then Jesus, right here, and Jesus came to the place and he looks up and he says one word that I think almost made Zacchaeus fall out of the tree. What did he say? Zacchaeus. Is Jesus doing research on the tax collectors of Jericho before this, you know, like. You don't always, how often is it in an interaction between someone and Jesus that you get a name? Zacchaeus. Says his name. And then he says, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. Now, I don't know how you'd feel if maybe somebody came up to you after the service and was like, let's get out of here because I'm coming to your house for lunch, okay? <laughs> and you might be like, uh, you know, distance. Uh, where, mm, uh, we got to, you know. For the ancient Near East, again, table fellowship is so meaningful, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. But if you sit and you eat with someone at their house, you're saying, I accept you as a friend. I'm happy to be associated with you. There's a, there's a sense of inclusion and loyalty and kinship. And so for Jesus to say to the chief tax collector, I know your name, and I'm going to come sit with you in your living room. What is he saying to the man? What does Zacchaeus feel? Grace, honored. You know me? You want to be with me? You'll sit with me and you'll let everybody see it? You'll let the whole crowd see that you want to fellowship and know and befriend me? Ah. He's melting. He's melting. What does he do immediately? He can't come down out of that tree fast enough. I mean, he skydives out of the tree. He is just out of the tree. And, and you, you see the text say, and he received Jesus with what? He received him joyfully. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Come to my house today. He receives him joyfully. Oh my goodness. Hmm. What are we learning about Jesus? In the first story, we get the ide identity of Jesus quickly in the beginning. In the second story, we get the, the statement about who Jesus is towards the end. But I want to walk you with it. Uh, I want to walk with you through it a little more slowly. Okay? And the way I want to do that with you is remember a guy we met just like a couple, how long ago? A couple columns ago in this text. Do you remember the rich, young synagogue ruler? I want, I want to think with you about the differences between Jesus' interaction with him and Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. What do these two guys have in common? They're rich. Uh, they're powerful. They're influential. They have that in common. What else do they have in common? They get an interaction with Jesus. A deep interaction with Jesus. A one-on-one -on -one interaction with Jesus. 
Another thing that ha- they have in common is something about the finances. What did Jesus say to that rich ruler? He knew what he needed. What did he say? So what you have, give it to the poor, follow me, and I'll give you eternal treasures. What did the rich ruler do? He went away sorrowful. Jesus eats with Zacchaeus, makes no verbal claim about money, and if you, you, know, you heard the story, what's Zacchaeus doing with the money at the end? Sprinkler with his, ah, take it, take it all. Just, I'm giving it away. I'm giving it away. He received him joyfully. Now that ought, these two accounts right next to each other, that ought to make us, that ought to make us think. Why did the one guy go away sad? Not having eternal life, remember? And he's the synagogue ruler. He knows the Bible. He's religious externally. And why is this other guy, at the end of this story, Jesus is going to say, today salvation has come to this house. Why? I want you to see who Jesus is and what he does. Do you remember what Jesus said about the rich young ruler? Remember with me Luke 18, 24. Luke 18, 24. Jesus, seeing that he, that's that rich ruler, synagogue ruler, had become sad, he said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, who can be saved? He said, what is, and what's that third word in his sentence? What is, what's the next word? Impossible with man. Now, what does impossible mean to you? It means impossible, okay? I don't have any Greek word tricks here. Impossible means impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. But to remember, now remember with me, what is it that he couldn't do? Was he able to come up? Was he even able to seek Jesus in a way? Yeah, he ran up to him and knelt before him. Was that possible for him? Yes. Was he able to interact with the idea of Jesus and what Jesus says? Yeah, was that possible for him? Absolutely possible. What was impossible for him? It was impossible for him to untangle his own heart so that he loved Jesus more than anything else. And that's why he went away. Because Jesus said to him, give me what you love most so that I can be what you love most. And the man said, no. This is what we mean by a sinner's inability to choose Jesus. It's not that that person can't make choices or even seek Jesus or even listen to Jesus, but in the end they will reject Jesus as Lord because they cannot get to where they love him the most. Jesus said, and what's the word again? It is what? Impossible. It is impossible for you to change your own heart. Is that statement true of Zacchaeus? 
It is impossible for Jewish synagogue leaders who are rich to change their hearts. Everybody else, no problem. It's impossible for religious professional synagogue leaders to change their hearts. Tax collectors, yeah, they do it all the time. They can do it. Is that what Jesus meant? Was it not just as impossible for Zacchaeus? Did he not have years of his life where he was rejecting his God and his people because he loved money? Yes, it was impossible. So how did it happen? How did then Zacchaeus go, come to my house and take it all? Take it all. How did he do it? Did you see what Jesus said, verse 5? When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I, now somebody tell me what that next word is, must stay at your house today. That word means it's necessary. It is going to happen. It is God's will. It is determined. Put this together. Jesus walks up to this man and what does he say? Zacchaeus. What's that mean? I know you. I know you. Hurry up and come down. He doesn't say, hey, can I come over for lunch? That would have been incredible. It would have been incredible. Can I come over for lunch? Zacchaeus would have been oh, so happy. But he didn't say, can I, can I come over for lunch? He didn't say, hey, you want to follow me? He didn't do that either. What's he say? Oh, I'm coming over for lunch. I have to. How often does Jesus have to do things? Do any of his disciples get to go up and go, yo, Jesus, you have to do this? You can try, right? We do. and You have to. No, I don't. Okay. Who is Jesus? He's the son of David. What does he have to do? At least as far as when it comes to his relationship with us. I don't have to do anything. Actually, there is one person who tells him what he has to do. It's his father in heaven. This is what I think Jesus is saying. You unpack the New Testament. This, I think this is what I'll say to you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have had in mind for a long time they were saving Zacchaeus. Before the foundation of the world. And Jesus know, he, he, he knew it was in his iCal, right, on that day. Today's the day. Today's the day I saved Zacchaeus. I must come to your house. My grace is going to save you. I'm going to change your heart. Wow. And then you see what Zacchaeus does, right? He, he hurries to receive him joyfully. Come into my house and take it all because I'm yours. And if I have you... That's my sweet spot. That's my sweet spot. Who is Jesus in this story? Let's let Jesus tell us. Look at verse 10. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Who is Jesus, according to him? Son of Man. We could spend a long time unpacking that. I'll give you the, the nutshell. Son of Man emphasizes two things. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself, and I think here, here's, here's a main reason. One is that the word Messiah was very loaded at the time. So if I say to you, for instance, the word Führer, what comes to your mind? Okay? It just means leader in German, right? That's all you thought of, just leader in German. No, that's not what you thought of, right? You thought of a bunch of other things because the title is loaded. Messiah was loaded at Jesus' time, and it meant, oh, he's going to come beat up the Romans for us and make Israel politically powerful again. And Jesus was thinking, that's actually not what it means. So he called himself the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, it, it does mean that he's human. Read Daniel 7 later on today and find out what it means that Jesus is the Son of Man. And you see that he's this divine figure who reigns over all things forever. That's me, Jesus is saying. I'm the son of man. But what did he come to do? To seek. And what else did he come to do? To save. Did he come to give the possibility of salvation? I've come to make salvation theoretically possible for the lost. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, some of them will like me. You guys, if he did that, no one would like him. Why? Because it's impossible for the human heart to love him most. That's what Jesus is telling us. And so when he says, I have come to seek and to save the lost, he's not making salvation theoretically possible for you. Hope you guys can do it right. He has come to do what? He will save you. He must come to this house today. And then at the end, today, salvation has come to this house. What do you think about your Lord here? Has he said that to you? Some of you, I know he has, many of you. If you, if, uh, if you told us your testimony, if we had testimony time after this, we just hung out here all day. Um, Many of you would come up and say, you wouldn't say, you know what, I, I realize I'm spiritually smarter than the rest of my friends, and I chose Jesus when they didn't. Too bad for them. Fooey on them. That's not, what, that's not what you would say. You would say, uh, those of you who became Christians as adults, you'd say, for years I just didn't care. I, it's not like I was an atheist, probably. I knew about Bible stuff, but I didn't care. And then one day, what happened? What happened? You needed him. And you cried out. You started to seek him. And he gave you that space like he did with the blind man. And he said, I'm coming over like you did with Zacchaeus. And then you realize, yeah, you were seeking him, but the reason you were seeking him, why? He was seeking you. Because he's the son of man who came to seek and save. The lost. Let's look how Zacchaeus responds. Verse 8. Who is Jesus? He's the compassionate son of David. The blind man shows us how do you respond. Well, you, you follow him. Worship him. 
Who is Jesus? Second story, he's the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. How do you respond to him? Look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. First thing you see, right, Zacchaeus was poor in spirit. Jesus came and gave him his riches, have me. And when, you, when Zacchaeus tasted that, all of a sudden, what, what's, what's Zacchaeus' treasure now? It's not money anymore. I've got Jesus. And so now, because I have received this lavish wealth from him by grace, oh my gosh, I have this new view. Look, there's poor. And I want to give out of, out of it now. Not to earn salvation, but because I have it. I want to give it now. Half my goods I give to the poor. And look at this next line. Holy smokes. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So he knows what, what was he spending his life doing and overseeing other people doing. Defrauding. He doesn't just say, Lord, forgive me, which is great. And did Jesus forgive him? Yes. But what's he going to do now? Pay it back. Let's skip past this point real quick before we have to apply it to our lives. Does Jesus ever call you to restore what you broke? It's not that you're not forgiven of it when you trust in him, right? But does he call you to restore? Start small. Uh, anybody said something really nasty? about somebody you have and uh, you get convicted later God please forgive me he does and what's it mean to restore Say it was gossip. Do you need to go back to that person that you told that to and say, I was so out of line to say that. I did not protect that person's reputation. I am sorry I drew you into that. Please forgive me. Do you restore it? Or you said it to the person, and you know there's a distance there. What do you need to do? This is kind of, you know, if, if Jesus is your treasure and you've looked to him, I just want you to think. It, uh, there's a wisdom issue to what it means to restore. Not all stories are the same. But I want you to ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Is there something you need to restore? Where because you have found now Jesus, your treasure, your king, he's saving you. There's, there's, a, there's a promise you broke. There's something you took. There's something you were supposed to give that you didn't. There's, there's something you, you corrupted. What might it mean for his glory? To restore because that's part of how people who see who Jesus is respond to him yeah we restore he's restored us right Zacchaeus is broken Jesus is rebuilding him remaking him restoring him at his cost and then to glorify him as we get rebuilt what do we need to do sometimes restore Anyway, let's finish up. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also, who is he? Son of Abraham. We got all our Sunday school songs in one passage. We could do Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Come on, help me out. A wee little man was he. And now we have Father Abraham. What does he have? Many sons. Tell me again, many sons. 
has Father Abraham. Zacchaeus is one of them. And so are you. Sons and daughters, right? It doesn't work as well with the song. but And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. It's actually a good song. <laughs> we're going to sing it right after this. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, we're not. But why does he say Zacchaeus is also a son of Abraham? Who's that for? That's for the crowd. This guy's my people. Moreover, he's a true Jew. Chosen like Abraham, belonging to the people of Israel. Who's listening to him? People who think they're the true Jews. And Jesus says, this guy, my people right here. Why? He trusted Christ. And he's in. Jesus is his treasure. Wow. Wow. Folks, how is it that Jesus can just uh, forgive an, a, a wicked, evil man like Zacchaeus? How can he do that? We know why he's going to Jerusalem, right? Why? Ultimately, he's going to die on a cross. And whose sins was he paying for? Yes, and Zacchaeus's. <laughs> paying for Zacchaeus. He's paying for the blind man. He's paying for mine. He's paying for yours. Do you see the compassion of your king who would pay for your sins, who would invite you to sit in his presence, who would welcome you in as his people? Do you see who Jesus is? You know, you get these three characters in each of these stories. You get the loser, the crowd, the king. And the, and the stories are pointing out to us who Jesus is and what it really means to respond to him. But one of these lurking questions is, who are you? Are you the loser or are you the crowd? The crowd is interested in Jesus. The crowd is walking around Jesus. The crowd is hearing some things that Jesus is saying. The crowd is self-righteous. The crowd demeans other people. And the crowd will be fickle. And when Jesus asks for everything, the crowd, some of this crowd will say, crucify him. You can be externally religious. You can believe true concepts about God. You can know things in the Bible and still be the crowd. I want us to be a church of losers. <laughs> some of you are like, you already are. Huh? <laughs> it's because I'm the pastor, right? <laughs> What does it mean to be a loser? Son of David, what? Have mercy on me. I need mercy. I can't do it. I'm not enough. I need you. Who is Jesus to you? He's our only hope. I hope he's your only hope. And what does that mean? Well, like the blind man, follow him. Worship him. Like Zacchaeus, receive him into your living room, into your heart, into your guts. Receive him as king. And in some way, restore, give, serve, because you know who Jesus is. You don't just know who he is. You know who he is to you. He's your king. Let's pray. Jesus, you're such a beautiful, awesome, wonderful king. We each confess, Lord, we're very crowdish many times. I am very crowdish. Uh, but we pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to just love you more than anything else. That we would trust in what you've done for us in the cross and resurrection. 
that we would be moved by your great love, that you would come to our hearts and say, today I'm sitting in your house. Change our hearts by your grace and that we would respond uh, as lost who have been found, lost who have been sought and saved, and that we would follow you with joyful hearts. Do this work in us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.